History, Lecture 49, Rabbi Blywise. Today we're doing the uh, Romans, Roman Empire. Uh, so I'm going to talk about where the Romans burst on the scene in, in terms of the context of our narrative, and then we're going to take a couple step back, steps back, like we talked about the Greeks not that long ago, and talk about Rome and everything it symbolizes, the way we understand it. And every now and then we dabble in the non-Jewish history that insofar as it sheds light on our history. So this is one of those days. Uh, we know now where we, where we left, left the scene of Judea, where the, uh, f- the flagging sovereignty of the Jewish states is you have these two Hellenist brothers, Hyrcanus and his little brother Aristobulus, literally fighting a civil war, brother against brother, with the various factions. Chachamim more or less trying to stay neutral on the side, and it's not looking very good. And Pompeius is the Roman general in the area, and he sends his army to Damascus. Is that the same person as Pompeius? Roman governor, Pompeius. I, I am assuming so. I don't know who you're thinking Pontius of. But yeah. No, that's Pontius Pilate. That's Pontius a different person. That's He's coming later. No, this is Pompeius, who's the Roman general. And he's stationed now in Damascus. And each brother says, and you remember that their, uh, their grandfather and their, their uh, great uncle and the many people in the Hashmonaim family had previously made pacts with the Roman Empire so that there is some kind of a, an alliance already in existence, and each brother tries to strengthen that alliance by sending a gift, trying to win favor with Pompeius, assuming that if the Romans will come and help me, then I can finally vanquish my brother. And Pompeius is perfectly happy to accept both tributes from both brothers, and he actually forges an alliance with each of them. Why not? Plenty of room for everybody. And he comes with his army down into Eretz Israel in order to finally play the fair judge, to have it out once and for all to determine which brother should win. You can almost picture the scene as he comes, as, as he comes down. Uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm taking some literary license here, but I imagine his troops marching down towards Yerushalayim, and on the way among the crowds are Hyrcanus and Aristobulus on, this, on, the, on the crowds waving on as Pompeius comes in. And when Pompeius makes eye contact with Hyrcanus, they exchange knowing winks. And meanwhile, when he sees over in Aristobulus, they exchange knowing winks. And, and Pompeius then looks at all of his advisors and they exchange the most knowing winks because he knows exactly what he's up to. And um, he comes in. The factions, meanwhile, in the city are fighting. And Pompeius comes charging in. He immediately storms into the area of the base of Mikdash, the holy temple itself. The, the Kohanim are in the middle of doing their avoda. And with this intrusion, they don't stop. They're in the middle of a mitzvah. Nothing's more important and uh, the Romans murder them. They die uh, death, what we say, Al-Kiddush Hashem, a martyr's death. And Pompeius now takes over. And now you have the fall in a pretty swift, uh, I mean, it had been happening as the Jews themselves, we're going to see this at the end of the Second Temple period as well, with the destruction, that it doesn't take much for the Romans to swoop down because the Jews did most of their dirty work by weakening themselves from the inside. And Pompeius takes over, and we have the immediate fall of the Jewish sovereignty, the last sovereign Jewish power in Eretz Israel until the modern times. And as they fall, Rome takes over. 
he comes into the city, he appoints Hyrcanus as a kind of a puppet king, because you need somebody to be the figurehead in Israel, but he conquers the city, and then he proceeds to conquer the land, he collects taxes from them, and uh, and they're not, he's, he's brutal, the taxes are, are, are exorbitant, he then, meanwhile, does not like this Aristobulus. You remember Aristobulus is more of a, of, of, of a brute, of more of a, of a troublemaker. And so he does not want any, not any problems from Aristobulus. So he takes Aristobulus and his sons in chains to Rome. Later, he's going to appoint a, a, another local as the practical ruler in the area. His name is Antipatros. And you remember him from yesterday. He was the manipulator who all along had, had, had plotted to have the brothers do one another in so that he could move in. And indeed, his plans come true. In the guise of the Roman regime, he's able to, to assert himself and be the, the ruler. Hyrcanus takes a secondary position. At this point, I want to distribute to you these Hopefully, uh, these, uh, this family tree, that you'll forgive the uh, anglicized version of these, please take and pass back, of the names, but hopefully it'll set some, it'll, it'll put some order to this, especially near the end. I'm assuming the early part is going to be more familiar to you. You can see that Matasyahu, as he's called in English, Matathias, was was the progenitor was the was the was the uh, father figure and then you recognize his five sons remember John Gadi that would be Yochanan we knew very little about him Shimon Yehuda Elazar Yo, uh, Yonasan okay they pass from the same Shimon is the one that that ultimately which one is the one from the Gemara the one that they mentioned in the Gemara. Ah, 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 that's Her Herod. That's Herod. That's, yeah, that's Antipatris' son. He's coming. Portus in the Gemara. You're in the Baba Basra? We're going to be talking about that Gemara. It's the one who killed all the whole family. Right, but that's much later. We haven't gotten there yet. You're ahead of us. You're ahead of us. That's Hortus? Hortus. Yeah, okay. It's a little more complicated as we try to parse through the various historic historical sources. But just stay on, the, stay on the family tree for just a moment. Uh, we'll come back to it. I'm encouraging you to hold on to these and to use them because it'll get a little confusing. Look at um, Shimon, the second oldest of the sons, was the last surviving son and the one to rule, and there was relative peace. His son was Yochanan Hyrcanus, who ruled for the longest period of time and became a tzaduki. Yochanan Hyrcanus had, of his five sons, three of them were famous. Um, the uh, in, uh, Aristobulus was the first to take the name king, and he only ruled for two years. And then Yanai, we see Alexander Janaeus, as he's mentioned there. Uh, he's, he rules for a while. His wife is called here Alexander Salome. Um, uh, and um, that would be Shlonsion, as we knew her. And then their sons, you already see, is Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. I'm going to be adding names to this as we go on, so uh, keep these and you'll use your pens. But for now, at least, um, pay attention. Aristobulus, one of the two, one of the two sons, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Aristobulus himself has two sons. I just mentioned them. They're Alexander and another Antigonus. 
And I, I, the family tree, I think, is very helpful, especially because so many of them have the same names. You, you got all this? Can you make, keep track of it? So now, those three, Aristobulus II and his two sons, Alexander and Antigonus, are taken captive by Pompeius and taken back to Rome. Hyrcanus now is second in command under Antipatra, and just make a mental note, Hyrcanus has a daughter named Alexandra. She'll also play a, something of a role in the proceedings. Good? Okay. Yeah. Shmaya and Avtalion pass away sometime in this uh, period, uh, closing in on the, and now that the Roman period has begun, uh, and Antipatros prevents an appointing of any successors. So that the Zugos, the spirit of the Zugos we've seen has been very fraught and not always consistent. They're not always in power. They're not always uh, able to lead the Jews in Torah as they hopefully, as they ideally would have done. The Sanhedrin then has to function, it has to declare the new moon, it has to do its various, uh, various religious functions, and it does so under the leadership of three brothers, Yoshua, Rabbi Yeshua, Shimon, and Yehuda, referred to as the Bnei Becerra. And they come up somewhat in the Gemara. The Bnei Becerra, they come from Beis David. They're famous for their humility. We'll see this shortly, why they're so famously humble. Um, they, the Gemara Pesachim says they gave up their crown in this world and therefore inherited a crown in the next world. Uh, they're also not considered part of the Shalshelis of Kabbalah, which means they're not in our Masora charts. They're not next in line. So this is the state of affairs as we find it as the Roman Empire rises up. So now, kids, I got some stories to tell you about the Roman Empire. And um, yeah, let's try to understand Rome in history. They are fairly pivotal and central. We know, and remember this, that in both Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and Daniel's visions, of what we refer to as the Dalad Malchios, the four kingdoms. This is the fourth and final kingdom of history. We're still part of what's called Gullus Romi, the uh, Roman exile. And Rome now emerges as, as the fourth and final vision. You remember we've been tracing this history in this class. The night Shlomo tragically wedded Basparo, so Gavriel planted a reed in the sea. The, uh, when Yeruvam ben Nevat puts up the two Egli Zahav in Dan and Bethel, so two, two huts were built in Rome that would be the, the foundation of the city. The city was built by, according to Roman myth, mythology, Romulus, read Romulus, that's where the name comes from, Romulus and Remus. And here's just a brief outline just we have a sense of who is this who is what is this empire that has such a major impact on us till today so their origins by their own account you know it was you would think that their detractors would make up such a story but no this is what the romans themselves understand is, is the, the foundation our foundation is a kind of created the world and there was this in, in, incredibly uh, talented and righteous family spearheaded by the Avos and the Mahos and it's all predicated on goodness and holiness and ethics and here the foundation of Rome we understand the real foundation is Asa of Russia but according to their version they had a mother who was a virgin Apparently that was not an uncommon theme in the ancient mythology. 
who was raped, of course, by the god of Mars or Hercules. If you see parallels with early Christian mythology, it's, they're, they're, they're clearly not a coincidence. So the virgin mother is raped by the god of Mars or by the god Hercules. Uh, but of course, she's married to the king, the Greek king. And then uh, the, the king goes to sleep one night and has a dream that two firebrands are shot out of his nostrils. Uh, you certainly can't fault them for lack of imagination in these, in these stories. So these two firebrands come out of his nostrils and burn down his city. That's the Greek king. Because uh, indeed the Romans will rise up and, and overrule the Greeks. Um, when the Greek king wakes up, he finds that his wife has just given birth to twin sons and then immediately died in childbirth. And so doing what Greeks tend to do, he takes the two babies and he sends them to be drowned in the river because he wants no reminder of this tragedy and also he takes his dream literally and assumes that these are the two firebrands who are going to burn down the city. And um, the messenger who's sent to drown the boys doesn't have the heart, so instead of drowning them, and this is a story, we saw something, we, we heard something similar about Ahasuerus's roots. Um, he leaves them in a forest. They're found, they're discovered by a wolf who then nurses them. So the whole foundation of the city of Rome and their whole culture is uh, literally suckled by animals. That's uh, the animalistic uh, uh, metaphor is unmistakable. Later on, we find Romulus murders Remus, typical as well, a, viol a violent underpinning to everything. Uh, now, there's ambiguity about how all this matches up with the dates. Uh, Rome was actually built and destroyed many times. As it says, certainly Rome was not built in a day. Uh, definitely not. Eventually, it'll become a metropolis. It'll become a huge city full of palaces, full of, of pagan worship sites to the gods for the various holidays of the various pagan Writes one of them is called Kalenda, Kalenda. Uh, that holiday comes not long from this time of year. It's when the days start to get longer uh, in the month of Tevis. We usually think of it, and that becomes the reference point. See if any of this sounds familiar. That becomes the reference point to what they would eventually call the calendar, based on Kalenda, the Roman, the Roman um, way of thinking about it. And in fact around January 1st. Oh, wow. So you see, the, you see the underpinnings of the Gregorian calendar as we know it till today. Now, Rome rises up and overshadows Greece, but it's tricky because they're clearly overlapping both in culture and in ideology. And um, it's not like there's a complete turnaround. Rome, to many, in many ways, we'll see as an extension of the Greek Profligacy, the emphasis on this world that we found in the Greek culture, that's not going to change so drastically under Rome. So then you might consider what is the difference between the Greek outlook and the Roman outlook. I would describe it this way. Greece celebrated the body, the mind, human wisdom, and aesthetics. Our enjoyment, our physical, our sensual enjoyment of this world. Rome was okay with all that. That's nice. But Rome was, you should think of, as more of a cruel, brute force of nature. The Romans were, and this is where you can unmistakably see the, uh, the spiritual legacy of Aesop, they were hunters, 
physically, metaphorically. They hunted down the world. That, that was their mode of conquering the world. That was the, the Roman Empire. Uh, it's good you all came today. This I think this is an important class, important topics if you want to understand um, the big, big sweep of history. Um, Rome came and divided and conquered the world quite literally. I'm about to use a lot of very famous expressions that pertain to Rome because there's just so many of them uh, that they're in, in the popular culture. We're not even aware of them, so I'll try to give that, give that uh, as much. In other words, who is a classic figure who divides and conquers? Well, Pompeius, who we just met, who came in and literally divided through the brothers and he divided up the, the as it were, the gifts, the tributes, and then eventually moved in to conquer. So dividing and conquer is typical of what the Romans would do. It was cruel, it was merciless, it was self-serving, and, th and that was exactly their plan. They ruled with what we would say, Yedayim, Yedei Esav. Their hands were the hairy, messy, hunting hands of Esav. Uh, just at a time when Yaakov Avinu will decline, one up, one down, Ula'om, Mila'om, Yematz, we read in Parsha a couple weeks ago. Esav's general, the aluf in the Parsha is identified as Magdiel in this week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayishlach. At the very end of the Parsha, when we have all the chieftains of Esav listed, if you look at the, the last Rashi, I think it's the last Rashi in Parsha, uh, it says Magdiel, and Rashi says right two words, he Roma, that's Rome. And it's unclear how that all works because we know that the Romans... Romulus and Remus, for example, descended from Yevu, excuse me, from, uh, from Yephes. You have that in your mind? It was, you have Shame, Yephes, and Ham. Yephes is the Greek uh, progenitor and the Roman progenitor. So then how did Rome actually become from Aesop, who clearly comes from the seat of Shame? And that, that part's not so clearly worked out. At what point did the seat of Aesop dominate the otherwise Greek uh, the Greek foundations of the city. Um, another difference between the Greek system and the Roman system is the Romans were much more orderly and conservative than the Greeks. Um, if you want, uh, let's say, a modern metaphor, you can think of the Nazis. The Nazis were ruthless, they were cruel, but always impeccably dressed. If that's your, can you, can you like conjure that image in your mind? That's Rome. Brutish to a fault. In uh, this way, you might think, oh, brutish isn't that way we describe the Persian Empire? Yeah, but the, the, the Persians were slobs. The Romans were neat, systematic, methodical in their cruelty, in their relative, in their, uh, as we're going to see, in, in their genocide. Even though using that word is a bit of an anachronism, but it, it, certainly uh, the concept applies. They, uh, they would never in the history of the world be an empire as vast and powerful. And people say, hey, what about the Aztecs? The Aztecs were powerful, but they were finite civilizations. They covered much more of a finite tract of land. The Romans encapsulated much of civilized, um, civilized land, human-occupied land in the world. Even if you're not Eurocentric, you'd still have to understand that many of the, most of the other continents were not heavily populated. The, the Americas did have a, what we call the Indian populations, but they were few and far between. Most of the tracts of land were, were simply rolling plains and empty, as, as was certainly the case and remains the place in Antarctica, Australia. Most of the lands, they may have had, uh, you know, the, 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 the Aborigines, but that, the, the, they were small and far between. So you could reasonably understand the Roman civilization 
was vast and was the most dominant civilization till today in the world. Uh, you could make an argument, yeah, but what about America today? Because the influence of America, what they call the McDonald's factor, the, the golden arches everywhere. Okay, I, I, would, I would counter that, and I'm about to counter. America, to a large degree, is the modern day equivalent of the Roman Empire in more ways than we can possibly know. And maybe I'll try to make an argument about that now. Um, although, technically, our tradition is that there's nobody like Rome, literally, and there won't be again Ad Shiavo Shiloh until Shiloh comes, which is a reference to Mashiach. We learned about Shiloh, we mentioned, mentioned such a thing. Ad Shiavo Shiloh, referring to you, uh, the bracha of Yehuda, and um, right, Rome is the last bit when Asaf ultimately will fall, Yaakov will rise again in supremacy, and that will be the, the, uh, the redemptive period of the Mashiach. Now, the Romans are misunderstood. We think of them as the epitome of evil, they destroyed the race of Mikdash. They're, uh, they're, they were foul and disgusting in their, in their, in the, in, and they took, they took human corruption to new levels of wickedness. You think Caligula, don't think Caligula, please. The, but but uh, just uh, depraved beyond, beyond uh, human imagination. But in their own way, they were idealists. The Romans wanted to help humanity in their, let's say, the best way of looking at them. Try to understand them the and try to understand them from their own point of view. The Romans were definitely idealistic. Do you know this? Any of you know what I'm about to say about the Romans? The Romans were, were, were big ideologues. Their idea was we're going, they were pagan. They believed in the, the, they had their own uh, overlapping mythology, different but related to the Greek world of, myth, of mythology. But their idea was to take this world and take humanity and redeem them from the ultimate evil. What's the ultimate evil in the world as far as Esau and the Roman Empire is concerned? Nature. The natural world. Nature is conducive to decline, to chaos. And the Romans were here to spare you, if you were part, if you were a card-carrying member of the Roman uh, upper echelon of society, they would spare you the hardships of the nature of the natural world. And to a large degree, and this is, I'm borrowing now from, from Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli and the famous Gemara and Shabbos, they did do quite a lot for humanity. We are still basking in the um, relative gifts exactly. They didn't, give it, they didn't give it to be altruistic, but the advances of the Roman culture and technology uh, are still with us to a large degree. As follows, here's some, some, some illustrations. Uh, they, with their ingenuity, with their engineering, they conquered the world in, t in order to improve the world. They had the notion that every, they actually weren't intolerant to local religions, with the exception of the Jews, but generally they allowed local cultures, wherever they went and conquered the world, they allowed them to do their thing, that's fine, as long as it doesn't conflict with, with our general plan. The Romans take over, we're gonna upgrade your lives. We're gonna build cities, we're going to, well, we're gonna do the following. We're going to create you know, the Romans created the first complex latrines. You can see examples of such things. One of the ancient, most ancient latrines, out, uh, bathrooms, not outhouses, but, but civilized, city-style outhouses. Anybody been to Beit She'an? Okay, in the Beit She'an Valley. Uh, we passed it going north uh, a few weeks ago. In Beit She'an, if you visit, it's an ancient preserved Roman city. And you can see a uh, room that the archeologists, I think, make a very, I think it's almost certainly that they're right on this. Uh, it's an ancient, public bathhouse, uh, not bathhouse, bathroom. 
as we would call it, uh, with seats where you can sit and do your business actually next to the other guy and I guess trade local gossip. They weren't much for modesty either, so there weren't separated cubicles, but that's an innovation. If you think about human waste and how we dispose of it and how we deal with it, that's actually has a huge upgrade on human life. If you can somehow find a way to upgrade it. Let me say let me say a couple things. It's about the latrines? Yeah, it's about the, the whole concept of people calling it body. Actually, I haven't right mentioned that yet. That's where it's going to go next. If you go, if you go right across from the biblical zoo in Jerusalem. Yes. In Yael. In Yael, right. Yeah. You can see, yeah, you can see has, part uh, of the Roman aqueduct system. Bathhouses there that are just uh, so it's like an ancient Roman settlement or something that happened in Az there. The holes that they would Absolutely, and that's not that, that's one of many in Eretz Yisrael alone. And you find ex examples of bathhouses and irrigation all over the Roman Empire. So since you mentioned that, the Romans, one of their greatest uh, contributions to humanity was uh, creating a complex irrigation system. In the pre pre prior to the Roman Empire, most of the human cities in the ancient world were bound and restricted to tells. A tell is the classic place where archaeologists don't like to uh, do, their, do their excavations because um, people lived near a fresh water source. Water is essential for human life, and so you can't live far from water. If you're living anywhere, you got to be near a water source. And so they were civilizations that simply built on previous civilizations. That's why you get layers of civilization. Come the Romans, and they built these complex aqueduct systems, taking the fresh, instead of people living by the rare freshwater sources with the underground reservoirs, aqu uh, aquifers. So now, suddenly, the Romans developed the ability to take the water and bring it to wherever you humans chose to live. Suddenly, you could live anywhere and everywhere. That was a huge innovation for humanity. It freed people. To, 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 to spread to spread out, to live far and wide. The, um, by the way, we're going to see where Yudabari lied. He's, um, there's, there's some discussion about how can he compliment the Romans when they did all this for their own self-aggrandizement as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai corrects him. So when we get to those gedolim, we'll talk about that. But for just let's consider for a moment the Roman contribution to humanity. So they create, they create this complex irrigation system um, I mean, it helped everybody. Unless you're living in a place like Egypt, which has its bountiful waters from the fresh water from the Nile, but most of the world was very restricted until until this phase in history. The Romans created this complex government and legal apparatus, which, compared to most of the pagan regimes, was a was a was a step forward. It meant that with the different divisions, the different governing bodies, you could actually have such a thing as. Uh, government-controlled health system, government-controlled roads and sewers uh, that paved the way for really modern technology and modern modern comforts of the world. So all of this is very much part of the Roman ideology. They built this way all over the world. When we say, when in Rome do as the Romans? And everywhere you went, we say all roads lead to Rome, literally because they developed this whole complex road system interlocking roads that you could travel on, thereby traveling far and wide throughout the Roman Empire, which effectively was most of the civilized world back in the day. And that was their purpose. And their idea was you could be anywhere in the Roman Empire and never feel that you had left home, because all Roman cities are designed according to the same model. Uh, we went, I mentioned this briefly when we, when we toured around Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh. Later, Jerusalem, which is uh, you can see very easily reflected in today's 
old city, what we think of the old city, is built on a classic Roman Byzantine plan. They built with a major north-south artery of traffic, and it's perfectly north-south. You can go to almost any Roman, and they were such perfectionists. Uh, Aesop style and the way they, they, they manage the world, you could put a compass down and it'll be exactly north to south in these places. So you have the Cardo, the main north-south artery. You have the Decumanus, which is the main east-west artery of traffic today. The Decumanus is more or less from Jaffa Gate down to the Roman Shook that leads eventually onto the Temple Mount. That major east-west east -west axis. And then the rest of the street, the old city is a little tricky because of the topography and because of all the previous and later developments. But in most Roman cities, they all, another, another eminently logical advancement was the grid-style streets, where everything is built on at, at 90 degree perfect angles so you can find your way around. You'll never get lost in Manhattan. Manhattan's a classic Roman-style city because all you have to do is go to 86th Street uh, between Fifth Avenue and, and right and, 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 and Central Park, and you know exactly where you're going, even if you've never been there before. Because in a grid you can't really get lost. That was that was another Roman innovation. Um, they would have it, that's what they tried to do. In a flat top topography, you could build such a perfect grid grid city. In places like Jerusalem and actually Manhattan too, every now and then you got some topographical problems, and they use those. They incorporate in the city. Usually they'll build roads right down the Central Valley. In Jerusalem, we have what's called the Tyropian Valley, which is actually a, a natural road. That's the secondary cardo if you've ever gone through the, the, the Damascus Gate, Sharshem, and you walk down towards the coast cell, you're actually walking down the valley road that goes at, a, at, a, at an angle. And I consider it Jerusalem's Broadway Street, because it's the same configuration in Manhattan. Manhattan was a perfect Roman grid city. And then you, have, you ever wonder about this? Broadway is this weird diagonal. Who's, who's been in Manhattan before? You know what I'm talking about, no? So Broadway, because that's, that's the one valley in an otherwise uh, nicely perfect grid uh, area, so they built according to the valley, and that's why you have one Broadway like that. But otherwise, they're trying as best they can to upgrade the physical world. They're all about the physical world. Um, you, I mean, I'm just giving you some examples. I can go on for a long period. They had a civic center, a forum, where all the basic important structures of society are to be found. If you need a judge, there's a judge there. If you need policing, there's a police station. If you need, if you need basic uh, amenities of life, everything is found in the civic center. Again, in almost every Roman city, you can find exactly that. I, I, my metaphor for this, I consider this similar to the Holiday Inn effect. Because America, I assert, is sort of like, or Western civilization, if you want to extend it, is really kind of like a modern iteration version of the Roman Empire, where you can travel anywhere in the world, but if you stay on the Holiday Inn, you get those really cute little like plastic shampoos, and it feels like you've never really left home. Yeah? So that's, that's the Roman effect. You've never really left home no matter where you go. And the goal is, let's have a nicer life. Um, human hygiene was now elevated. People died. Pretty, people had low life expectancy in the ancient worlds, the Romans, in trying to elevate the physical experience in this world, helped longevity by bringing in new sanitation. The irrigation helped sanitize the place. Sewer systems helped get rid of waste more effectively. And bathhouses, which became a whole culture in itself, they weren't only about hygiene, but let's start with hygiene. They enabled people to be clean, and if you're clean, you're healthier. Very straightforward. 
If anybody would like, I, those of you who came in later, welcome to take these. Um, we did a bit at the beginning of class on the Hasmonean dynasty, which gets complicated and will get more so. So I encourage you to take these and bring them back in the next few days as, as this comes up. Yeah, Arye? Um, interestingly enough, though, the most innovations that were incorporated by the Roman Empire is their to the national design. Um, they weren't even present for another thousand years after the collapse of the Roman Dark Empire. Ages. For example, the entire Dark, Dark Ages. Ages. That's Dark right. Ages. These all, all of these things, Very not all of them, but many of these things went underground. But they became known. In London, there was no. But that's not quite accurate. In what we think of as Europe, that's what we think of Europe, what you described is true. But you know, later on, we'll talk about this. At one point, the Roman Empire cracks in half. And the Eastern yeah, Division, Byzantium, was not only still around, did just fine things very much till about, the, till about 1453 when, yeah, the, when the Young Turks, when the Ottomans took over. And what we think of, like, you ever heard of a Turkish bathhouse? Yeah, They're not yeah, Turkish per se. They're a holdover from the Roman scheme. The Turks who had conquered from the Byzantines were basically a holdover from the Roman Empire, all borrowing on the previous structures. So it's, they may not have been dominant, certainly not in Europe, but they were around. Everybody knew about them. They never, they never, they never quite went away. Went, went away. Went away. Um, they also developed an unprecedented war machine. Never had there been the, sophistic, the, the sophisticated weapons. It was the world's first professional army. Uh, they introduced the notion of a 25-year conscription. You became a soldier for basically your professional career, at least for a good portion of the young, important years. Uh, they developed a very systematic, orderly uh, rank style in the army with 24, sometimes as much as 28 legions. Each legion was made up of five, sometimes 6,000 troops, individual troops. Beautifully worked out. It was, the Greeks had sort of developed this, but the Romans took it to a new, uh, to a, to a new height and they were intimidating. People didn't want to start up with the Roman Empire. I mentioned when we when we went to Yushalayim, Rav Orlovich has a, a whole theory where he develops that the Jews destroyed the Roman Empire, which is counterintuitive because it seems quite the opposite. The Romans destroyed the Jews. We don't see that. We don't see any indication that the Jews destroyed the Romans. So his his point was that the Jews, in fighting against the Romans, even if eventually they lost, they showed you could do it. And other people who never even considered how can you fight the Romans suddenly thought, hey, they've got an Achilles heel, we can fight them too. And that paved the way for the Visigoths and the Barbers and the many other groups that would, would come to sack Rome and ultimately, and the Berbers, right, and, and eventually, and, and Barbers, and eventually deplete the Roman Empire. It, it could be done. But, you know, from the face of things, who would ever in a million years want to take on the Romans? They were ferocious. They were more advanced than anybody. They seemed to have the gods, small g, on their side. From the, from the ancient world's perspective, you didn't want to touch them. It was like, like Kind of like that, right? So you can see a lot of parallels between that world and our world today. Yeah, Aaron? Um, Amalek, who's a descendant of Asa, who attacked the Jews as they left Egypt. Yeah, what is your connection? You're saying because the Jews attacked the Romans from Rabbi Luke's uh, theory. I, it's an interesting reaction. I hear, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I mentioned this when we had a tour as well. The Romans had uh, immense innovations architecturally. Again, all upgrading human experience in this world. Um, the, our architecture reflects who we are. If you've ever walked in the streets of Manhattan, and you, 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 it's hard not to feel. Try to picture yourself. 
wow, we're amazing. Look at what humans can do. Look at those skyscrapers. Look at the Guggenheim Museum of Art. Look at the, look at the it's endless, okay, fine. You can like it or you can take it or leave it. But on some level, you have to even, even begrudgingly say, wow, look what human beings can accomplish. It's very much the power of my hand. It's very much Aesop's celebration of human prowess. And that's manifested in Rome with massive structures, colosseums, and, and, and um, whole cities constructed largely underground. Why do you suppose they developed all of these um, streets with pillars and the Corinthian capitals? Because ideally, you would, you would build structures with arches and domes, creating an underground city effect. In the, in the ideal sense of things, because you know, for Aesop, Aesop didn't really like to look at the sky. Because when you look at the sky, what do you think of? You think of a Kaddish Baruch, you're feeling pretty small in yourself. And so that's not a feeling Aesop identifies with. Aesop is the master of his own universe. And I mentioned there, and I'm drawing from a prescription for Al Hirsch in talking about the end of days, the war in the end of days we call Melchemist Gogu Mago. Does anybody remember this word? Can I say this when we, when we toured a few weeks ago? Did everybody hear this? And I won't repeat myself. Some of you didn't. It's a worthwhile thing to consider. The, uh, we read in the 14th chapter of Zechariah and Sukkot, we read about the destruction, the end of days war, and it's a war that Nechezkel is referred to as the Mechemes Gogu Magog. And it's not so clear, what is that war and who are these nations that we're fighting in the end of days? Who is, there is a mention to Magog, but it's not so clear, sort of Hirsch interprets that Magog actually refers to, and Gogu Magog refers to an ideological word. Gogu and Magog referring to a Hebrew word. What word do you recognize there? Gog, roof. It's the roof that shuts out a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And that's indeed the Roman styles that you can see exist until today, trying to block out the sky, trying to block out the sea. When a Jew looks at the sky and a Jew looks at the sea, what's our first, I think about mitzvahs, what's our first association? Well, among other things, what's the color? Blue. Tchelis. In fact, Rabbi Meir on the mission defines Tchelis as the blue of the sky and the blue of the sea. So try this experiment in your mind's eye. Take a piece of sky and hold it up and tell me what color do you see? It's transparent. It's transparent. Take a piece of ocean and hold it up. You have the same trick. But it's unmistakably blue when? When you see it, you take a step back and you see it in its totality. What's the root of the word trellis? What's the word, root of the word trellis? Coal. Take the top off the beginning, the top of the end, you're left with coal. As we have in um, this week's Parsha again, we have coal characterizes a view of everything that the Abus could see everything and they saw Kaddish Baruch Hu in coal. As Avram, as Hashem blesses Avram, Bakol. As we saw that in a couple weeks ago, Yitzchak was Miko. And then we have in this week's parsha when Asaph says Yeshli Rav, so Yaakov says Yeshli. This week's parsha, Kol. And we refer to the Avos in benching when we say Bakol Miko Kol. Can you We shall all be blessed. And we put the tzelis, the same color of the of the sky, the blue of the sky and the blue of the ocean, in our tzitzi. Because when we look at the tzitzi, which are a manifestation of Kol, of all the mitzvahs, they're connected Kol the mitzvahs. That's why you get the 613 mitzvos, the gematria of tzitzi being 600 with the eight strings and the five knots, that's 613, and the tchelis caps it up. You have your vision of everything. And the Jew looks at the sky, and the Jew can, can, uh, encounters everything, encounters a godly universe. 
Um, the Jewish equivalent of the Gag, of the Esav Roman Gag, the roof that they try to build, what do we see? At which time of year will this war take place? What is our equivalent? Is the sukkah is the schach. And the unique feature, one of the unique features of the schach is we always have to let in some of the light. They can't be completely hermetic schach so that there's no sky that's visible. That's be a little bit of sky at night that you can, you can envision. That way we let in a Kaddish Baruch so the end of wars, uh, the end of day's war is going to be between Rome and Esav and, and the Jews. It's Yaakov versus Esav, where Esav plots to block out a Kaddish Baruch in the world, and the Jews are trying to bring in the light. Um, we uh, we find with Esav, and Esav will be a dominant theme for the rest of history. Uh, that the more sophisticated their culture, Rome being an example of a very sophisticated culture, the more ferocious their brutality. And there'll be other instances in history that will sadly, vicariously relive. Um, the Romans advance a unique system of democracy, taking it up several notches from the Greek system. The entire nation, at least if you were men, women didn't count, uh, voted. Uh, there were, uh, right, even in fact, only the wealthy ruled, but uh, at least the people were given a vote. The Senate were elders who were appointed for life. So if that sounds like a good job, it's not quite as good of a job description as you would hope for because life, when you got to the Senate, often wasn't very long. It didn't last very long. It was a very uh, brutal times under the Romans. At any given time, there were usually 600, but sometimes 700 senators because it was passed on um, by inheritance, and some people had no children, some people's families were killed off entirely, other people were elected. It was not as, in this instance at least, the Romans strove for order and they didn't always achieve it because of the bloodiness, the, the, the brutality of their system. Um, every land conquered became an official Roman province, and by Roman law that meant that everything that they found belonged to the, to the Rome, including wives and children. Uh, would be taken as slaves or, or concubines by the Roman authorities that be. Um, and even though he was not the first ruler of Rome, the first prominent ruler is a, is a personality I want to spend a little bit of time, the next few minutes, talking about. His name, of course, Julius, and then later Caesar, who came himself from a, la from a family of aristocracy. Uh, at his birth, his mother died, and they cut her open to extract the child, the first official, C-section, Caesarean section, what's called in Yiddish the Caesarean Schnitt. There's a Tosfos in Avodah that talks about it. He was the world's first Caesar. The term Caesar was now officially used. Uh, what that meant was he was the king of kings. He was the ruler over all the kings. Caesar right. Julius Caesar. Yeah? He wasn't. When he was from... From the time before he even took the title of dictator, um, which was only two weeks before his death, no one, he wasn't a dictator, but he was still called Caesar. He wasn't even the king of Okay. No, the, the, people, the people gave him that title. People gave him the title. I'm not going to do a comprehensive number on Caesar. I'm going to do a very brief overview. I, what I said before he came in was that I'm just talking about this to give some background to understand the general history as it informs our history. That's, that's, my, that's my goal here. So we can, we can debate a lot of the particulars. Uh, here's what's, I think, essential. Um, he was, from a young age, a uh, mighty soldier. He 
proceeded to conquer much of the world. He was known to kill hundreds of thousands. Human life was not meaningful. Uh, he seems to certainly come from the, uh, in the tradition of Esav. He makes a pact with Pompeius. Those of you who came in late, Pompeius had now had already conquered Judea from the, from the, from the uh, Hellenized sons of the Hasmoneans. And he makes Caesar, Julius, makes a pact with Pompeius and another general named Crassus. And their goal is to take over the new empire. Uh, the Senate, who was under a different rulership at the time, pronounced a death sentence on Julius Caesar. And that was not something that you did, uh, and, and uh, you, you, you did uh, that, was, uh, that was a safe thing to do. He, with his troops, stormed into the Senate, killed immediately the chief counsel of the Senate, together with many of the senators, and the rest of the senators fell before him crying, begging his forgiveness, and ultimately a very dramatic scene, yelling, long live Caesar. And Caesar uh, typically and brutally rose in power. Uh, Pompeius comes to fight him. Caesar, in Rome at the time, there is a figure who's languishing in prison. I mentioned him at the beginning of class, remember his name? Look at your, look at your uh, family trees. His name is Aristobulus. Remember the younger son of Yanai and Shlomzion? He was in prison with his two sons, and Caesar realizes this, and he knows he's got a good fighting man on his team. He releases Aristobulus from jail and points him the head of two of the Roman legions. That means 1,200 troops. Uh, and, and, he, and he sends Aristobulus to go fight for him. It's, I, I think about this story, and I think Jews have a disproportionate impact on general world history. They're preponderant in general world history, even in fights that have nothing to do with us. What are we doing there? Uh, you, see, you see that frequently. Um, and here's Aristobulus going and fighting for the Romans. Go figure. The, uh, eventually, whatever happens to Aristobulus, Sudukim conspire and they are at a feast with him and they poison him and he dies. So most we're going to see many, many of these figures are going to die. Um, he has a son named Alexandros, and Pompeius's men catch him and chop off his head. And the other son of uh, the other son, Antigonus, escapes and make a mental note of that. We're going to find Antigonus again. So that's why I'm saying there's a, this. I said this is like a soap opera. There are a lot of figures here, and it's worthwhile trying to keep track of them. So you see Antigonus. He's one of the survivors of the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, he survives and he gets away. And he'll come back with a vengeance. Pompeius, for his part, crosses the Rubicon, to use some of the Roman terminology. The term crossing cross the Rubicon means he, he comes back to the point of no return. It's based actually on the point when Caesar crossed to capture Rome. You know all this, great. Uh, he, when he, okay, he's so smart. What, did he, what does he declare when he crossed, when he, when he captures Rome? Elia iacta est. The die is cast. Oh, I know it in English. Fine. The die is cast. Um, Pompeius crosses the Rubicon to fight Caesar in Rome. They betrayed each other. There's a bloodbath, as there so often is. Pompeius flees to Egypt, and he's killed off there. Uh, usually, it doesn't end well for most of these figures. Caesar goes to conquer Egypt next. And guess who comes to pay a uh, visit to Caesar? Our old um, convert... Antipater comes to uh, to Caesar's aid. I'm going to help you, Caesar. Of course, you can still keep me. I like this position of governor over Judea. Keep me there. Um, Caesar has fallen in love uh, with, and he installs Cleopatra to be the empress of 
Egypt, when Caesar conquers Turkey, okay, it's, it's, it is another one. When Caesar conquers Turkey, he sends back to Rome, famous three words. There you go. Vini, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. Okay, and um, he sends Antipater back to Judea and he makes him the governor. He exempts Antipater from paying taxes. He sees this con Jewish convert as uniquely loyal and uh, pay attention to that one too. We're going to see how that uh, has an impact on, on our lives in, back in Eretz Yisrael. Um, Antipater coming back, newly vanquished and, and, and reinforced in his, in his position in Judea, he appoints his two sons into high positions. Pitzael uh, is, is in Jerusalem, and his 15-year-old son, Hordus, Herod, is appointed to be the regional governor of the Galilee, of the north. Uh, speaking of Herod, the early episode in his life is significant. At one, Herod is basically a gangster, a young tough with, uh, with, with political connections, and his gang of soldiers unilaterally execute a, a group of Jewish bandits, but they do so without trial, without halacha, they ignore the Sanhedrin, they just, it's vigilantism. vigilantism. Uh, they, 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 they execute this, this group of Jewish criminals, and uh, there's an outcry. Back in Jerusalem, this is anarchic. You can't do this. And Hyrcanus, who's got the secondary position back in Jerusalem, they call on Hyrcanus. Remember Hyrcanus? Throwing out names, you remember keeping track of who's who? Hyrcanus was one of the, was the older brother, right? The Hellenized older brother. So the Sanhedrin puts pressure on Hyrcanus. Bring Herod to the Sanhedrin and let's try him. He's a Rodef. He's a murderer. He can't, we can't have this guy roaming the land. So they, eventually Hyrcanus calls to Herod. And Herod comes down and he's backed. He walks in with a strut, this 15-year-old young tough. Walks into the Sanhedrin, uh, backed by his troops, by his father, Antipater, and his Roman haircut. Got it all going for him. And the Sanhedrin is intimidated into silence. They don't know how to confront this young kid. And there's a member of the Sanhedrin who is appalled at their coward, at the cowardice display. His name, it's his first, and we've, we've seen him briefly before, but it's his first great moment on the, on the historical scene. His name is Shammai. And Shammai alone steps up and he speaks boldly. And he, he doesn't criticize Herod, he criticizes his colleagues. He says, you know, the way it works in Halacha is that the Nidon, you all know what Nidon is after learning Makos, the defendant ordinarily comes castigated before the base team. He's the one who's submissive to you, not the other way around, not the way around friends. He says, Herod threatens to kill you and the judges, and you let him intimidate you. You and your, your, your Hyrcanus, the king, some king, stand meekly as you submit to him. Well, you know what's going to happen one day? Hashem is going to punish you. One day this young kid is going to be the ruler over all of you. He won't be submissive to you at all. Uh, pay attention to these ominous words. They're going to come true. Herod is going to kill off the majority of the Chachamim of his days. Um, meanwhile, Hyrcanus persuades everybody. says, you know, let's not be hasty on anything. Let's try the boy in the next, uh, tomorrow morning. Let's give it Halana Sadin. Let's sleep on it. And they, they're persuaded to uh, delay the trial overnight. 
And guess what happens overnight? Hyrcanus helps Herod escape, and Herod flees to Damascus. And he gets away. Now, um, Caesar, and he's, uh, he's with the advisors. He has he now having conquered Egypt. Caesar has advisors with the Jews of Alexandria. And Caesar is a brilliant fellow who puts together a calendar called the, what's the name of the, his, his calendar? Appropriately enough, the Julianic calendar. It's a similar but different calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And the Julian calendar, and, and I mentioned the calendar is also from the Greek of the Roman Empire, and Julian puts together what's called the Julianic calendar um, that is similar to a calendar that's in Shas, an important sugi in the Gemara Ruvin that we have two different approaches, Mar, Bar Sh Mar Shmuel, Yarchanai's approach, which is the approach that Caesar borrows to, to affect his own calendar. It's in contrast with the other approach, which is Rav Adar Bar Ava's approach, which is what we think of as the Gregorian calendar. The two sis cal calendar systems in the world, eventually the second one, the Gregorian calendar, will be the dominant system in the world as we have it today. Um, yeah, they distort it. They, the new year comes too early, but that's that's where it all begins. Um, Julian in the calendar renames the seventh month for himself, July. Uh, his successor will rename the eighth month, August, after Augustus. Um, Caesar's assassinated, and his mild-tempered yes, there you go. Uh, his mild-tempered great nephew is Octavian Augustus. And he's the second Caesar, and he's unique. Um, he's considered uh, the king or the Caesar over the long golden period because it's relatively quiet, and since most of Roman history is tumultuous and, and brutal, uh, this is an unusual period where it's quiet and he's mild-mannered. Um, at some point, I'm abbreviating because there's a lot more intrigue than I'm letting on, but you get a feel, you get a flavor of the times, no? Of just of all the intrigue. You know, all these people are vying for power, but I don't envy them their power because it's short-lived and indeed Antipater, the Gair, the, the, the Herod's father back in Herod's Judea, who was the temporary governor there, he's poisoned and killed. That's the way it goes in the ancient world. Uh, Josephus, the historian of this period, tells us that at some point, Herod, Herod gets married. He has a lot of wives, but his he gets married to a woman named Miriami. Bas Alexandros. That's what Herod said, and as I'm going to do it several times in the coming days here. Take out your maps here, and you see in the family tree, again, keep the two brothers as the organizing units. You have Hercules and Aristobulus. Aristobulus, you can put an X in his box. He's been, he's been killed, poisoned at a feast. Um, his son Alexander was had his head chopped off by Pompeius, but Alexander had left um, a couple of kids. One is named Miriami, and um, he's, a, he's a son. He's a son that we're going to meet as well. Um, but Miriam, according to Josephus, marries Herod, and the explanation is is that Herod, ever aware of his inauspicious roots, he's a descendant of Edom. He's not a Jewish man. Uh, is aware of his the fragility of his position. He marries, as it were, into nobility. Say, say it louder. Well, now that's the Gemara. We have to, we're going to we're gonna have to figure out that Gemara in Baba Basra, okay? And I'm deliberately holding off on that. Uh, according to according to the Gemara, the Pasha's Gemara is before he can even marry her, 
she, she, she jumps up, she goes up to the rooftop and jumps to her death. And she was the last of the Hasmonean. And she's considered the last of the Hasmonean. That's what the Gemara Baba Basra seems to indicate. Josephus, the historian of the time, indicates otherwise. I'm giving you everything and leaving it to you to decide what's best. There are other Jewish students of history, historians who've written books from good Jewish historians who, have, who try to reconcile the contradictory texts in a bunch of creative ways. I'll give those to you. I don't buy any of them. I think that they're trying to be, you know, I think it, sometimes when you're a historian, the tendency is to try to make everything, to tie up all the loose ends and to make everything entertaining and work together. Uh, it seems to me that some of, the, some of their efforts, as well-intended as they are, are a little bit forced. So I'll present to you all of the above. Uh, Josephus indicates at least that Herod gets married to Miriamie. Uh, and, and, and the soap opera continues. I mean, it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's only going to get more intense. Today and on Sunday, you'll see, you'll see uh, we're not going to get to everything today, but I'm going to start the story right now. So, um, yeah, Herod now tries to solidify his claim to power by marrying, well, by marrying Miriami. Uh, the Jews complain about Herod's wickedness, also Pitzal and the lazy Hyrcanus, they complain to Augustus's second in command, a figure by the name of Mark Anthony. Okay, all these famous figures from history, the Jews all are connected to them. The Jews complain, but Herod's a charmer, and he befriends Mark Anthony, and uh, he says, no, no, it's all fine, and Mark Anthony ultimately sides with Herod. Uh, and Herod's quite a brute. The last story of intrigue for today. Remember Antigonus? The son of Aristobulus, who got away, well, he comes back. And he's planning to overthrow his uncle Hyrcanus and Herod and Petzael, uh, Herod's brother. And Antigonus makes an alliance with the eastern Partim, similar name to the Persians from the same area of town, but a different, a different phase in history. The Parthians, yeah, the Partim in Hebrew. Um, and Antigonus, with the help of the Parthians, besieged Jerusalem. Okay, so you got Antigonus fighting on one side, you've got Hyrcanus, his uncle, and Herod and Pitzal inside fighting them. Uh, the, ins the people on the inside are defeated by Antigonus, and Hyrcanus and Pitzal go out to make peace and are put in chains. Pitzal tries to escape and he dies. Antigonus takes his uncle Hyrcanus and cuts off his ear. Why? No, it's significant. What was one thing that the, that the Hashmanaim were always careful to assert their power? They always took on the role of, and Hyrcanus had this from his mother's days, Kohen Gadol. And if he cut off his ear, he knew exactly what he was doing, Antigonus. When he cut off Uncle Hyrcanus's ear, he made him a Baal Mum and thereby puzzle, disqualified from being a Kohen Gadol. Why the specifically? Okay, fine. Well, uh, yeah, I guess particularly cruel. That was their style back in the day. The... Um, and then he sends Hyrcanus back to Bovell. Meanwhile, Herod, and Herod, this is so typical, he slips away by night. He escapes to Edom. He escapes with Miriami, with his sister, with his supporters, with his mother, Kipros. Uh, it's a whole other story that I'm not going to go into, but he's, he actually finds refuge south of Jerusalem in a place called, today, Herodian. And later on, they believe, a few years ago, that the, the archaeologists believe that they discovered Herod's tomb in Herodian, that's debatable, but possible. Anyway, uh, the, Herod gets away by night, 
So make a note, Herod's gone, but he'll come back. Antigonus now briefly rules. If you really want, I mean, in terms of how the history pans together, it's complicated, but if you consider it this way, he's technically the 11th of the Hasmonean dynasty to have any autonomy in Judea. And the last indirect descent um, of the Hasmonean dynasty. We'll see some others who might be rulers, but he's the last to rule. Um, the others might include Herod's grandsons, Agrippus I and Agrippus II, if indeed they descend from Miriam, from <coughs> Herod's wife Miriam. Um, Reverend Victor Miller argues that they weren't from Miriam, that Herod lied to promote himself, and that they, they were from other wives and not, not legitimate. But we're ahead of ourselves. Um, Herod goes to Rome. He rallies support from Caesar Augustus, from Mark Anthony, from the Senate, and they crown him king of Yehuda and Jerusalem. And the curse uh, in the curse in, in, in the uh, Kuala and Dvarim comes true. Hager Asher Yale Alecha Mala Mala Vata Terid Mata Mata. The convert in your midst will go up ever higher and you will descend ever lower. It's metaphorically true on so many levels because the, the, as when Asab's up and Herod comes from Edom, he's from Asab, he ascends higher, higher. Yaakov goes lower, lower. Uh, and he's a gear if he descends. His father was Antipater, and um, he's ascending over the Jews. Herod sails back with Mark Anthony and, uh, and, and a hefty fighting force of the Roman brigade, and he sets out to attack Antigonus, the, 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 the surviving Hasmonean, and, and the Parthians, and years of fighting ensue. Herod finally captures Yushalayim. He slaughters, as he usually slaughters, he's a big killer, and he kills Antigonus. Uh, and that's maybe consistent with the Gemara and Baba Basra that you keep quoting, that Misha Omeshu Hashmonai Evidhu. Anybody who says that he really comes from the Hasmonean house, he's really an Evid. Herod claimed to come from the Hasmonean house because he married Miriami, but really he was just an Evid because it, uh, he, the, according to Rev Miller, his conversion wasn't valid, so his status was an Evid Knani kind of a status. He wasn't a little, it wasn't really an evident. What is true, though, is effectively the ruling dynasty is wiped out with Herod's rise. What was the line of David? The line of David, we remember, survived through the seed of Yoyachim. You remember the Yoyachim begat Shalciel and eventually uh, Zerubavel. And then we saw the last, the beginning of the Second Temple period, I, don't, I think you might have been unwell at this point, the beginning of the Second Temple period, we saw that they were not prominent, they were kind of figureheads, and the last name that we saw was Meshulam, who goes back to Bavel. And it's a line that was preserved in Bavel. Hillel descends on his mother's side from that line. Uh, but there's the father's side that's preserved, and we have a long line in that preservation that will be, many of them will serve as Reish Galusa in Babel. Uh, Rashi traced his ancestry and was, was a descendant of that line. Uh, from Rashi, you have, uh, Bar, you have the Barbanel, you have the Marshal, you have other great figures who also traced Davidic ancestry. And today, there are apparently out there, and some people claim it, although it's hard to prove it for sure, it doesn't matter, Eliyahu Nabi is going to come and tell us exactly who Mashiach and David is, uh, the, the line survived. But it's not a dominant line here, and you remember that the, the Hashemunayim were all Kohanim, so they were really illegitimate kings. Yeah? Um, actually, uh, one of my dad's very good friends, he claims to trace his ancestry is the way I tend to think about it. He claims to trace his ancestry, and it may be true. 
I'm sure he thinks it's legitimate, and it may be. I, I reserve my doubts. That's all. I don't know how we know such things with the tumultuous history that we've had. Maybe at the end of this year, as we go through this together, you'll, we'll, we'll re-experience Jewish history. And I don't know. I think I'll try to share my doubts with you about how we really know any such things nowadays, given the, given the, 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 the problems that we've had in preserving traditions. Um, Tomorrow we're going to see the. I'm going to explain the rise of Herod. Uh, Herod is uh, really such a such a such a figure of, of wickedness, and yet and yet poor Herod. Herod when he rises up as a young man, Herod was somebody with all of his evil. He was somebody who ultimately wanted everybody to love him, and he was a huge paranoid, uh, multiple personality, complex uh, individual, uh, as they like to say in Herod's name. You know. You'd be paranoid too if everybody was out to get you. So that more on that not tomorrow, but on Sunday. Oh, how old was he? I don't have the age.